Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's word. I do apologize. I'm a little under the weather today, but we are going to make it. Uh, Before we get into it, let's pray together. We have some work to do. God, thank you for your abundant mercies in Christ. You are present with us. That is your promise to us that through the Holy Spirit, you are present, you are active, you are working. You're, You're working to break down barriers in our hearts, to take scales from eyes, to fill up broken, lonely, miserable hearts. God, we're going to look into the heart of the gospel this morning. I pray that it is not just the same old, same old, that as the angels looked into the gospel and were amazed, may we so too be amazed yet again. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we have been in this book for a little while now. It's taken us some time. I I look at it kind of like starting a train. So if you don't know, when you start a train, you can't start all the cars at once. You can't start all the the cars. You have to start it one at a time to build up momentum. I don't understand the physics of it. I just know that's how it goes. If the the engine tries to pull them all at the same time, they ain't going to go anywhere. We're kind of doing that right now. We are slowly, one car at a time, building up steam. But it is good to be here. Actually, this is a really long sentence, verses 1 through 14. Paul didn't stop writing. He just kept on going for 14 verses. These magisterial things. Listen, if you believe this, if you believe that what Paul is saying is true in Ephesians 1, and that means nothing less than you have been written in to the greatest of stories of fairy tales. And I think that's actually what we want. I think that we want to be part of something much larger, much bigger than ourselves. I'm a baseball fan, but not that much. But I think that I was one of many, many, many people to watch the Cubs-Indians game seven this last week. I think it was on Wednesday. It was amazing. And it was amazing, amazing, mainly because of the narrative of the two teams coming together. The Indians, the Cubs, they had not won a World Series for decades. 40 million people watched that game. 40 million, the most since 1991. Five million people came out from Chicago to see the Cubs in their parade. That is one of the largest gatherings ever in the history of Earth. Why? Why? I think there are lots of reasons, of course, but like I said, I think that we like to feel part of a story. We like to be part of history. The Cubs and the Indians, they had not won a World Series for decades and decades. The Cubs, you probably heard this a million times, not since 1908, more than a hundred years. And so for those fans, and even for me, who's not a Cubs fan, to witness it, to take part in their historic win, it is so fun. And I think meaningful. Why do you think that people take video at sporting events? Have you seen this? 
Since iPhones, when you're at a sporting event, they hold up their phones. Now, they have to know that the video they're taking is not going to be very good. It's not going to be good quality, right? They know they could just DVR it at home or go find the, go find the, the highlights on SportsCenter later. And yet they stand there with their crappy little phone and they take video. Why do they do that? I've done that. You want to be part of it. You want to be part of the history. To capture the, the game-winning play. To be reminded the, of, the, of the roaring crowd when you were there. We like to be part of the story. We long to be wrapped up in a narrative that is greater than ourselves. I think everyone feels that. And Paul is doing that. He's laying out a narrative. This is not just doctrine. The book of Ephesians is not just theology proper. He's telling a story. The story of God and redemption. God has been pursuing us from the beginning He has set us apart in election, we learn, in predestination for nothing less than our adoption into his family, for nothing less than our holiness, our perfection, our completeness, our shalom in him. In this pre-move of God, this setting apart from before the creation of the universe, it is part of a larger plan, isn't it? A story. A story of redemption, a story of love, a story of reconciliation, the greatest of stories of fairy tales. And here is the most astounding thing. And if you hear anything this morning, hear this. You are part of it. You are in the story of stories wrapped up into it. You are not standing, though, on the sidelines and the stands with your phone. In a sense, you are a central part of it. And it is not meant to pump up your tires. I don't mean to say you are the greatest. I'm saying that, and Paul is saying that, for your good, for your joy, you must see yourself as part of the story of God. Remember how the old hymn goes? Let us tell the old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. That's all I want to do this morning. Just retell that story. Retell that story so that we may again know the part we play, the place that we play, so that our lives will be changed forever. Three points this morning. The story of redemption, the story of God, and the story of reconciliation. First, the story of redemption. The story of redemption if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Ephesians 1.7. We're going to slowly walk through this. Ephesians 1.7. <clears throat> what does it say? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's some kind of theological, league, theological language, isn't it? Redemption, blood, forgiveness, trespasses. Well, what does redemption mean? That's the central word there. Redemption. We have Redemption. Well, redemption is probably what you think it is. It's to be redeemed, or more accurately here, to be freed, to be saved, to be delivered, to be taken out of a terrible situation and put into a better situation, into a good situation. Redemption, being redeemed from something terrible, brought into something good. It's pretty simple. Whenever you talk about redemption in the Bible, you have to think back to the Israelites, To the Israelites when they were in Egypt. 
in bondage under the oppressive rule of the Pharaoh. And what do they do? They start crying out. We are under oppression. We are dying. We need rescue. And God heard their cries. He sends Moses. He sends plagues. He rescues his people out of bondage, out of slavery, out of misery. And back in at some level to his presence, to he who loved them. That is redemption. It's very simple to bring back a people. But Paul is not talking about the redemption of the Israelites here, is he? He is talking about us. He's not talking about Moses and Aaron and the people of God. No, he's talking about the new people of God. In him we have redemption. Which means that we needed to be redeemed, right? It means that we used to be in bondage, or maybe we are still today. Our bondage is not physical like it was with the Israelites. We are not chained up. We are not forced into labor. But our bondage is real. And it is lostness. We need to be redeemed because we were, or we are today, living apart from God. We need to be taken out of a situation extracted and put in a new one, a good one, a glorious one. Why is that? What is the bondage? Well, the word here is trespass. We need to have our trespasses forgiven. If you grew up in the church and you remember the Lord's Prayer, that's how we used to say the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. And it means basically what you think it means. It is to trespass against God's holy law, to break his commandments. But I think that word can, can help us a little bit because I think that we're meant to understand our sin in relation to God in, in the physical space between us and God. In other words, spatially. That's how we are to think of sin in terms of space. When we talk about trespassing against God's holy law, really what we're talking about is veering off course from God's best for us. We are veering off course when we say no to him. We are veering off course and going our own way. Now, it can be a tiny sin or something great. It actually doesn't matter because once you start to go off, well, that will end so far away from him. I learned this lesson the hard way when I tried to retile our kitchen floor. And and it did not go well. I'm never going to do that again, I don't think. It took like a month. I'm not joking. Just a simple kitchen floor. Well, what I learned is that if you, if you don't get the tiles perfectly straight and in the straightest line, well, all you have to do is get it off just a tiny bit. And that first one won't look so bad. But then when you get to the end, how does it look? You are way off course. To trespass against God, even if your sins start small, will result in your separation from him. I think God wants us to feel that. I think he wants us to feel and experience and know our separation from him physically, spatially. When you sin, you veer off course. You are separated from the God who provides. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve trespassed God's obvious command and what happened to them? They were punished. And their punishment was very specific. They were removed from his presence. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. This is at the end of Genesis 3. 
he drove out the man and, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, they were pushed, excommunicated out of the garden. Now, he could have picked another punishment. He could have picked something else. I don't know what it would have been. He could have. But that is what he chose for them. To remove him from their presence. And the reason for this is to show them what sin is. He wanted them to feel it, to know it. That they should understand physically what their sin had done. In 1 Corinthians 5, maybe you know this, it's kind of a a hard part of the book of 1 Corinthians. The whole thing is kind of hard, but this is particularly difficult because Paul is addressing an egregious sin within the Corinthian church. And he says to this guy, he says about this person, this man who is not repenting, who is continuing in sin, Paul says, push him out. Excommunicate him. Get him out of your church. And if you read that for the first time, you go, whoa, isn't this the guy that talks about grace all the time? Isn't this the guy that says we are to love each other, be united with each other, to forgive each other? And he says, straight up, get him out. Get him out. Remove him. But then he clarifies. He doesn't say do it out of spite. Do it because you don't like this person. He says, remove him in order that you save him. In other words, if they let him stay inside the church, Paul is basically saying, how will you know, how will he know the severity of his sin? How will he know that he has fallen away from the Lord? Remove him physically from the body of Christ. To feel your sin, to feel your separation from God. It is to feel your need of redemption. That is the baseline, first step of Christianity, that you would feel your need. We need redemption because we cannot just walk back in. It's like when you're at a a movie or you're at a concert and you try to go out and they say, don't, can't come back in. Once you're in, that's it. If you leave, you can't get back in. The same was true with Adam and Eve, right? The same is true for we who trespass against the will of God. Once you are removed, that is it. You cannot walk back in. Hear that scene again at the end of Genesis 3. It's actually terrifying. It's terrifying. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. Usually we think of cherubim, these cute little angels. No. Massive, powerful. And it's implied that they are swinging a sword every which way and it is ablaze so that they cannot come back in. They cannot come back to the tree of life. It is bad enough that Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden, but when they turn around, they probably would have felt it like, hang on, is this really what we want? They turn around and they see the angels there and they are stuck. There is no back in. They are living out their trespass physically, spiritually. And we cannot believe that we are any different. We cannot believe that our reality is any different in this world. 
In him we have redemption. What does that assume? We needed redemption or we need it. Maybe you are here today and you need to be redeemed. You need to be brought from darkness and into light. You need to somehow get back and to eat into the tree of life. You are living apart from him and you feel it physically. You feel it in your guilt. You feel it in your wearied bodies. You feel it in constant and in, in irreconcilable differences with your family and friends. You feel it constantly living out your trespass, living apart from God in Eden. That is the baseline beginning of the story. But I'll tell you what, there's good news. There is good news. So just to continue with a sports analogy, So I actually love to find out when my team has won, even though I haven't watched it, especially if I've DVR'd it, right? So if someone, they they spill the beans and they tell me, you know what? Your team won. They came back at the very end. That actually doesn't depress me. That actually makes me happy. I hate watching sports, actually. I've basically had to stop because it churns my stomach and makes me sick. So now when people tell me, it's like all the pressure is off. I go watch with delight, with joy. My team is going to win. I think Paul is saying that. In him, we have redemption. In him, it's coming. You don't have to sweat it out. You don't have to worry which way it's going. You who are lost, you who are in, in trespass against God, if you would merely trust in him, you will be saved. He will be brought back. God comes in the name of Jesus Christ. He comes in the work of Jesus Christ. And he purchases us. He makes atonement for us. He sets us apart. That is what redemption does. Every year, my family, we go up to a Christmas tree farm and we cut down our tree. And we actually go twice We're really crazy about it. We go twice. The second time, we go down to cut the tree and bring it home. But the first time, we actually go to market, to set it apart. We run up to this tree that we love. It's glorious. It's like shining in light, right? This is the tree that we're going to bring in. Usually, it's way too big for our house, but whatever. It's there, and we take a little tag off. It says, this is ours. And then what's fun is that the the farm that we go to, you bring decorations, You decorate the tree right there as it's in the ground. And you do kind of crazy stuff like hats and scarves and tinsel and popcorn, whatever you can find. But it's your tree. You pay for it. You come back. And then when you come back, you see it. It's it's right there. It's yours for the taking. You know that is your tree. And then you get it. You cut it down. And you bring it into your house. In a way, this is like redemption. Now, I know my illustration is not perfect because you're killing the tree. We're not doing that. But you get the point. God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And by his blood, he marks us. Like the mark over the door with the Israelites, the lamb's blood that he would pass over. Well, this is much different because this, is, this blood is eternal and it is for us forever. When we trust in him, we are covered in his righteousness. We are set aside. We are marked. 
We are his. He redeems us. Still in our sin, still veering away from him, he sees us. He sets us apart. He pays for us and he covers us. That is the gospel of God. God did not wait for us to come to him, did he? He did not wait for us to try to make it back through that gate in Eden. He knew that we would die doing that. No, only Christianity says, I, God, will come to find you. Every other religion says what? You must find your way to me. You must earn your way to me. God says, I will come down in Jesus Christ for you to redeem you. And we are forgiven. You see that there? Our trespasses are forgiven. And that just simply means that he had to pay for our sins. You can't just forgive without paying. No one does that. Whenever you forgive someone, did you know that? You are taking on something for yourself. People don't like that. They don't like, why can't God just forgive me? Why did Jesus have to die? Someone had to pay. Someone had to pay. Say, I love to use the lamp illustration. You're going to someone's house. You're kind of clumsy and you bump into a lamp, falls over a million pieces. You look at the owner and you say, I'm so sorry, let me pay for that. And then he can accept the payment, right? He can accept the payment. Or he can look at you and he can say, don't worry about it. It's all good. But did you know that either way, someone has to pay for that lamp? You can pay for it. But if the owner says, don't worry about it, He is paying for that lamp. He is taking the cost of that lamp on himself. Friends, we broke what we could not fix. And Jesus comes to us and he says, don't worry about it. Jesus gave the wonderful invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here's my question. Do you have any idea what it would take for him to offer that to you? That is not just something that he could give away freely. To offer you a hardened, ruined sinner, rest. It was not something complimentary. He had to pay for it. In him we have redemption through his blood. He does not pay with money. He does not pay with silver. He pays with his life. Only the blood of the divine Christ would suffice. The blood poured out on Calvary. The divine Christ offered as payment for guilty sinners. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ and as you are walking back, in a sense you are walking back to that that gate, that garden. And there the cherubim are, right? And they are swinging that sword from, from this way to that. But as you approach, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, having been redeemed, their sword slows. The flame extinguished. And you pass through. You walk back in to the family, to the city, to the garden of God. You are redeemed. 
That is your story. That could be your story. But the story of redemption is nothing without the story of God. The story of God, it began with him. And my question is this, what drove God to redeem us? What drove God to redeem us? Look at verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Again, why redeem us? Why do that? Why sacrifice his only son for sinners? It was not anything in us that did it. He didn't do it to us, right? It was not his fault. It was entirely all our fault. And we kept on sinning. As he's redeeming us, it says we are, were at war with him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He redeemed us. Why? I just want to point out two words. Grace and lavish. Grace and lavish. Look at that first word, grace. We are going to, as Luther said, beat this into our heads. Grace. Grace is what made God do something we never would have done. I want you to, to feel that tension. God did something for us that we would never have done for someone else. Because I think if you're like me, we all have a grace breaking point. We all have a grace breaking point. We have a limit. No matter how good you are or perfect you are, someone will do something to you that you'll stop being gracious. Because grace is what? It's giving to people what they do not earn or deserve. Sure, we're good with that for a time, but then there's something that they can do. I can only forgive for so long. Not God. He extends His grace no matter how awful we are to Him. He gives His grace. He gives us something that we could never earn that we do not deserve because He loves us. This is the story of His grace. This is who God is. You could say God is grace. That is what moved in His heart to come after you sinners. The other word there is lavished lavished. That is a wonderful word. God did not just give us his grace. He did not just give us a, a little bit, a little morsel. He did not just give us a few crumbs. He lavished us with grace. He gave us what we needed and more. He gave us, he saved us and he gave it more. Look at the phrase according to, according to. He gave grace according to the riches of his grace. And that's actually a good translation. Some translations say, out of his grace. Out of his grace. But this is better. He acts according to his grace. He lives, he moves, he loves according to who he is. And this means the limits are off for us. We can receive it all. It's like, it's the difference between going up to a rich person and getting a small handout. And having a rich person come to us. And they bring you into their family. They write you into the will. Everything is yours. God lavishes us with grace. Friends, when you think of the Lord, when you think of God, do you feel warmth? When you think of the sovereign Lord, the Father, do you sense in Him peace and goodness? I'm going to ask this question specifically, and it's a little strange. Are you growing in your fondness for God? 
Are you growing in your fondness for God? Are you fond of the Lord? Because His heart has been revealed. He loves us. He has lavished you with all of His riches, the cost, the the blood of His Son. Are you affectionate? Are you fond of Him? Even if you're some non-affectionate big dude and you don't like to show your emotions, are you getting close to him? Drop your guard, trust his lavish love, and enjoy it. The story of God is that he is love and grace for you. Finally, the story of reconciliation. The story of reconciliation. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, okay, what does that mean? This is actually a little technical problem here. When he says he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, does that mean that God, in his wisdom and insight, came to us and gave us redemption? Or does it mean that in his grace and his lavishing, he gave to us wisdom and insight. Now, most commentators, and I agree with them, think that this is not referring to God, though God is surely wise. He surely has a lot of insight. But I think that this is talking about something that he has given to us. He has opened our eyes and our hearts. He has given us to the ability to understand what? It's right there in the next verse. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Our eyes, friends, have been opened to his gospel. Our eyes have been opened to the glorious plan of redemption and the Father's hearts. It says that it was a mystery, right? It was a mystery. No longer. No longer. We now know in Jesus Christ the plan of redemption. We know with wisdom and insight that God has come to save and rescue his people. And we also know that there is a larger plan. We have wisdom and insight to know that he is on a pathway to reconcile the world, to reconcile heaven and earth. Look at verse 10. That's our last verse this morning. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, this is what the Lord is doing. This is a story. It started before the foundation of the world. This is what he saw was coming. And he would bring peace. He would bring unity. He would bring together heaven and earth. The word that I like to use is reconcile. That's a biblical word. We are a reconciling people. We are being reconciled to God. He is reconciling heaven and earth. He is bringing things together. Together, And I just want to end this morning by saying this is your life now. This is your life now. You are living out the life of reconciliation. We have wisdom and insight to live out lives of reconciliation. To on earth display as best we can the reconciling love of God. I just want to give you four things that you can do. First, be reconciled to God. This is what we've been applying all this morning. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. There are men and women in this room who do not know Jesus. Do not wait. Do not wait. You are staring into the Garden of Eden. You are staring into the heavenly places. And it is blocked off for you. 
but Christ is right next to you and he is whispering to you, my blood is sufficient for you. Take me and I will clothe you. Do not wait. Do not wait. Second, continue to be reconciled to God. Continue to be reconciled from God. And what I mean here is simply turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Stop living in the sin that God has freed you from. There are many here who are enslaved to sin. They have given up and they have said, I will live perpetually in this. I will try to be a Christian and I will try to be a sinner at the same time. Not only is that not only is that short-sighted, not only is it dangerous, but it is not the life God has called you to. Remember Lewis, we said a couple weeks ago that he says that we are often like half-hearted creatures living in slums, living with drink and sex and ambition. This, this week I told that to the students and I said it was like playing with poo in the sewers. And we do that every day. Lewis says, God is offering to you a holiday at the sea. Stop your life of sin. Be reconciled to him continually. continually. Three, be reconciled with your family. Be reconciled to your family. I'm going to say this very quickly. Your wife, your children, your parents, your siblings, your extended family, your brothers and sisters in Christ inside the church. Be honest and seek peace where there has been separation, where there has been anger, where there has been sin, you who have been reconciled with the Lord of the universe, reconcile with your family. Forgive a thousand times over. Trust the Lord. Let go of your pride. Live out the gospel today. Four, be reconciled to the church. I said there were four. There's actually five. Four, be reconciled to the church. D.A. Carson says that apart from the gospel, we, the people in this room, would not hang out together. We would not hang out together. He says that we would be natural enemies. But with the gospel, we who have very little in common are breaking down the cultural barriers that separate us. If you are living out the story of unity in this church we, then you will reconcile with everyone. And what I mean is you will be friends with everyone. Economic barriers, educational barriers, racial barriers will be broken down. We will be as one. We will be united. Be reconciled in the church. Finally, seek reconciliation in the world. Here's where I get to talk about the election. I told someone that I was going to do a sermon on uh, politics soon and he just said straight up no. Maybe in a couple weeks. But I am glad for this passage that we could talk about it a little bit. If anything has been proved from this election, it is that we are a people divided. We are a people divided. It seems that no matter how much we grow as a society, no much, how, 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 however much technological advance we enter into, we cannot agree. We cannot agree. We are divided. And all I would say is what would it look like if we as a people tried to bridge the gaps in our society, not just surrounding the election, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but in all ways, that we would be a third way, that we would be a people, that we would be a reconciling people, bringing two sides together, bringing fractured people together. So let me say politically, right now, you have an opportunity. And it's not going to end this week, by the way. Our 
in a sense, our misery does not end on Tuesday. It's going to keep on going. So I think that we should care about election and politics. We should. We should be grateful for this country that God has given us. And we should see our responsibility in voting and discussing and taking part as great. It is a great responsibility. You should care about elections and politics. But in the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the gospel, you should not care about it as much as loving your neighbor. Joshua Rothman said this recently in The New Yorker. It was a piece entitled, Red Neighbor, Blue Neighbor. Politics matters enormously. It's right to care, to feel alarmed, and to argue. And yet politics can become a poisonous influence in our lives, like a tacky filter on Instagram. It can color our perceptions too radically. It can play too large a role in the construction of our identities and our social lives. It fills us with unwanted, passionate intensity. Man, that is true. I don't think this guy's a Christian, but that is true. I want you to vote on Tuesday, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't care who you vote for ultimately, though. That is not what I care about. I care, can you love your neighbor in this time? Can you love the Hillary supporter? Can you love and care for the Trump supporter? Can you truly be gracious to them? And what I mean is, can you go to them and see them as individuals, as children made in the image of God and dig deep into their stories, try to understand them? Seek to explain the reasons for their beliefs better than they can. Can you minister to them with grace? If you are an agent of reconciliation in this world, then you will. We will be distinct. As divided as we are, we will stand apart. So politically, I want to say this last one. I didn't know if I was going to say it, but I'm going to. Racially. Racially. This has nothing to do with the election, at least not directly. I think that we as a people, and that we as Christians, must begin again to approach this issue together. We live in a racially charged and fractured world. And so I think that we need to admit that maybe we do not have the whole picture. I heard a, a politician during the primary say, if a group of people, if African Americans are consistently saying that something is amiss, that something is wrong, then we owe it to them to listen to them. As agents of reconciliation of the gospel, that must ring true for us. Especially we who are white, who are Caucasian. We must understand that our experience of America, of this world, is going to be different than minorities. And I would just say start thinking. Listen. Do we understand their anger, their fear, their pain? Do we understand what Black Lives Matters even really mean? Are we doing what we can to alleviate, to stop the racism, even if it's very subtle? I leave that out there for you to think about. There are so many other ways that we are agents of reconciliation in this world. But this is the truth of the gospel for us. This is the story. This is the story of stories 
the greatest story the world has ever known or will ever know. We are not in the stands taking videos, are we? We are on the field, beneficiaries of his lavish grace. We are here to work. We are here to live out what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has brought ruined sinners together with himself through the cross by the blood of his son Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your rich mercy. I thank you again, yet again, you have reminded, reminded us the beautiful story, the old, old story, and yet it is new for us again today. You are Savior. You are Savior of sinners. By way of the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have redeemed your people. God, I'm going to pray again as we head into um, communion right now. Uh, God, I pray that you would be with us. God, I pray that you would uh, move amongst us. God, I pray that you would show us again your mercy. We are going to do the physical act of your gospel, the eating of the bread and the juice. Though we felt our lostness physically, now we will feel your grace physically as we eat and as we drink. God, for those who do not know you, I pray that they would come to Christ this morning. God, for those who are far from you, who are living in sin, I pray that they would lay down their sin at your feet, they would confess it, and they would return to you. God, we who are living in fractured places in our families, in our communities, would you make us agents of reconciliation in this world? You must do it, though. You must do it. Apart from your grace, we will fall on our faces over and over and over again. Oh, God, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.